Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, what we're doing now is we're opening up our hearts to you as we've opened up the word. We want to be able to understand better what it is you've said, what it is you're communicating. That in the midst of the trends that we're experiencing, we need the truth. We need to be able to relate truth to trends. We're busy trying to figure out when things will be reopened. We're tracking. We're trying to understand. What we need to be able to furthermore understand is the truth that relates to the trends, and that truth is found in you. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. and No one comes to the Father but through me. So now, Father, this morning, no matter what it is that anybody's experiencing, no matter what it is in terms of the challenges that we are confronted with right now, job-wise, health-wise, family-wise, you know. You're present. You're powerful. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Even in our scattered state this morning, Father, we come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a freshman in college, and I'm standing in Blanchard Hall of Wheaton College, and I'm looking at the listing of the missionaries year by year that went out overseas. And there's this extraordinary bell curve that if you look very carefully, subsequent to World War II, there was an influx of individuals who would take the gospel to the far reaches of the earth. Tom Brokaw, in his book, The Greatest Generation, has penned thoughts with regard to what was happening, not only during World War II, but subsequent to. And in the dust jacket, the book says, in the superb book, Tom Brokaw goes out into America to tell the stories of individual men and women, the story of a generation. America's citizen heroes and heroines who came of age during the Great Depression and the Second World War and went on to build modern America. This generation was united not only by a common purpose, but also by common values such as duty, honor, economy, courage, service, love of family, country, and above all, responsibility. They persevered through war, were trained by it, and then went on to create interesting and useful lives in the America we have today. And I thought about that when I came across uh, a book by David Howard, From Wheaton to the Nations, because there's a particular excerpt where he describes the influence that the returning soldiers had upon uh, the generation of students that were there at the time. As a result of their experiences overseas, these veterans returned to college with a vision to establish mission societies for the specific purpose of returning to lands where they had fought. Several key mission agencies were founded by, by 
in this case, Wheaton students working with other veterans of the war. One classic example, Mission Aviation Fellowship. Men who had flown and maintained bombers and fighter planes said to one another, look, Uncle Sam trained us to fly and to maintain planes. Why not put this work on behalf of missions? We could fly missionaries to their remote outstations in the jungles and elsewhere in matters of hours where they have now to spend days and weeks trekking to such places. Send International, Greater European Mission, and then the technology of Elwa in Africa as well were impacted by this. What fascinates us then is that these were individuals who were able to and willing to invest themselves in making crisis work for them rather than against them. There's an operating principle I want to develop for us as we begin this study this morning in Acts chapter 11. When we bring Christ to the crisis, the crisis becomes the seedbed for creativity. Let me say it again. When we bring Christ to our crisis, the crisis becomes the seedbed of creativity. Those World War II vets, when they returned, they returned with an idea of taking the gospel back to the places where they had previously fought. They did not waste their efforts. They invested their efforts. Now, in this time of coronavirus, what we need to be able to say is that in the midst of the crisis, we're to bring Christ to the crisis. And when we do so, the crisis becomes the seedbed for creativity. We find new ways to be able to communicate the gospel effectively. So what we're going to do this morning now is that we're going to look at what is taking place in terms of a crisis that had been enveloping the Christian landscape. The believers have been scattered. Saul of Tarsus and others have been involved in persecution. Those once gathered are now scattered. But rather than allowing for the gospel to remain within Jerusalem, they now take the gospel with them into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. Now Peter has just gone beyond Samaria. And in the prior chapter, he is encountered firsthand an individual, not a Jew, a Gentile, who is willing to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter had stepped out of his comfort zone because of crisis. And now creativity kicks in. What I want to do with you now is to look at three stages of what I will call creative ministry that unfolds here in these verses. And the first, well, we're going to develop it out of verses 1 through 3 as we begin this exposition. When you, when we, I, when we see God at work in what we will call unsettling times, 
prepare, first of all, for initial resistance to our involvements. Initial resistance to our involvements. Peter's going to experience that. He has now seen things, the outskirts of Israel, that the inner core who had remained within Jerusalem had not seen, hadn't experienced. And maybe you now have experienced things you had not previously experienced or others have not experienced. Don't waste it. Invest it. So in verse 1, the apostles and the brothers who were through Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. It's not being enclosed within Judaism. The gospel is now penetrating other regions throughout the land. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, critiqued him. Now listen, if you're going to be involved in cutting-edge ministry, going to be a leader, expect to be criticized. Haddon Robinson tells the story of a young musician's concert and was received poorly by the critics. And the famous Finnish composer, Jean Sibelius, consoled him by patting him on the shoulder and then said, remember, son, there is no city in the world where they have erected a statue to a critic. Now, Peter has gone out on a limb. He's gone out of his comfort zone. He's left Jerusalem, and he's been tracking the movements of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost happens in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit, outpouring of which comes upon the people residing there. But then a second outpouring of the Spirit happens in Samaria, as described in Acts chapter 8. But now a third outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened in Acts 10. And Peter, I can imagine, he's energized, and he's coming back to Jerusalem. He, he might even be excited to be able to tell other brothers and sisters in Christ as to what is taking place, after all, was to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. Is he met with open arms? In verse 2, when he went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went up to circumcised men and ate with them. Pause there. Let's get our bearings. Look at the map. Get a sense of where he was, where he was headed. It was in Joppa, same setting by which Jonah tried to escape God's will. He made his way up to Caesarea, Caesarea furthermore, setting that would have been mocked by Roman influence. There he encountered a man, a Gentile, Cornelius, who had been seeking God and then would put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And now Peter begins his trek. Now if you and I were traveling this, we would take the Yitzhak Rabin Highway, Take about an hour and 20 minutes. Got your international driver's license to you. Making our way back to Jerusalem now. And we're pondering what was it that Peter was thinking? What kind of reaction would be he be experiencing? What does he hear? You went up to circumcised men. Ate with them. 
you would have thought they'd be excited that people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Instead, they're criticizing him for his table manners, who you're hanging with. What's Peter thinking about at this point? Well, he might go back to that extraordinary experience he had in the earlier days of Christ's earthly ministry. There was an unexpected convert by the name of Levi, also known as Matthew. Uh, Jesus had said, follow me, and Levi made a great feast in his house. And in Luke chapter 5, you and I were told there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, they had to add the word sinners, didn't they? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to call the righteous. Not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He would use a parable. And he would use a parable in such a way in which the garment industry would be nodding their heads, following what he has to say. No one tears a piece from a garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. I can almost see the conversations in the house at that point, can't you? You see, the Pharisees were holding and upholding old wineskins. And Jesus is pouring new wine. What Peter's about to do at this point is to follow through on that previous meal conversation that Jesus had. He's bringing new wine into Jerusalem, but it seems as though his critics are more interested in the old wineskins than the new wine. How is it with you? You're bringing a sense of freshness to life even in the era of coronavirus? Are you able to spot the opportunities that are there at hand so that even though there might be initial resistance to your involvement in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you bring Christ to the crisis, the crisis in turn becomes the seedbed for creativity of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Mahatma Gandhi shared in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was incredibly touched by the Gospels and was seriously considering becoming a born-again Christian. It seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided India. One Sunday, he attended church services, decided to ask the pastor for some enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left, never came back, and his autobiography says, 
if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu, quote, unquote. Now what has happened at this point, you see, is that those within Jerusalem had not fully embraced the fact that this was meant for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. But God has chosen to take the true blue Jew, none other than Peter, who holds the keys to the kingdom, to begin to unlock the doors by which the gospel would go forth. So he has been traveling. He has been touching base. He has been utilizing full-spectrum discipleship. And he's, as he's made his way across the Israel landscape, the result is that there is evidence and there is attestation that God is doing something unique and powerful. When you bring Christ to the crisis, the crisis in turn becomes the seedbed for creativity. And World War II was a crisis. But out of it, we have soldiers who would then span the globe sharing the gospel in creative ways. Coronavirus is a crisis. But we create cutting-edge technologies and the like. We're even utilizing it right now in order to be able to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ effectively in the area in which God has placed us in. So when you and I, when we see God at work in unsettling times, prepare, number one, for initial resistance to our involvements, but number two, beginning in verse 4, all the way down through verse 17, second of all, the evidential recountings of God's grace. Okay, what do you do with initial resistance? Answer, what you need to do then is to provide evidence Evidential recountings of God at work to be able then to hammer away at the wall of resistance that has been put up with regard to what God is doing at this very point. John Stott, the rector of All Souls Church in London, extraordinary church, he's now home with the Lord, detected four what we will call hammer blows in verses 4 down through verse 17 that Peter utilized in order to break down this wall of resistance to the spread of the gospel. Now, Peter doesn't get self-defensive at this point. And when you find yourself having gone through a crisis, maybe it's a divorce, Maybe it's been the loss of a loved one, and now you find yourself alone, and you're trying to manage this new technological landscape we find ourselves in. And you're wondering, how do I do this? Where do I go with this? He's not self-defensive. Instead, and he shows his growing maturity in Christ. He begins to explain and he explains to them in order. There is a linear thought process that's unfolding in front of us. Beginning, you see, in verse 5, down through verse 10, he talks, first of all, about what, what God here has done. Look very carefully. 
I was in the city of Joppa praying. Joppa. Let that appear before your eyes at this point. I can imagine now there's pushback already within the hearts of the of those entrenched in Jerusalem only. They are the people who never left, never left their, their restricted quarters to experience more of life. But now Peter's been there. He's seen, ah, that's where, that's where Jonah tried to escape the will of God. Joppa, you see the harbor. But furthermore, another scene. There's a rock, the rock of Andromeda. I remember standing there looking at that rock. Andromeda comes from Greek mythology. Stories told about the Greek gods in mythology. Peter had to go face to face with the Greek mythological influences upon that region. The false spiritualities. And how God was at work even there. What you and I are going to have to do is to go and to put ourselves in context with the false mythologies and spiritualities of this world and allow for crises to be such that when we bring Christ to the crisis, the result in all of this is that the crisis becomes the seedbed for creativity, new ways to be able to communicate critical truths. There's Peter. I was in the city of Joppa praying. You're back to the text. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, obviously pertaining to north, south, east, west. came down to me. Notice that it's descending. Peter, at this point, could have been saying to himself, you know, I'm thinking about how that veil of the temple was rent in two, top to bottom. And now here's something, top to bottom, getting close to me. So close that you're up now to verse 6, aren't you? He's looking at it closely. Just like he raced Peter to that to that tomb, that empty tomb, and examined the evidence, looked at it closely. It was a crisis. But three days later, Christ emerged out of that crisis. Resurrection Sunday was at hand. He's looking at it closely. And notice he says, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Now you can imagine the emotional pushback happening. That's not on our Jerusalem menu. The restaurants around here don't serve that stuff. That's for the Gentiles only, you see. Well, Peter doesn't let them stop him. Here in verse 7, he said, I heard a voice. He was given the visual, and now he gets the verbal. A voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. God knows his name. Now, he's being humble at this point. He's, he's saying, this is, you know me. This is the way it is. I said, by no means, Lord. 
Well, he's got a tendency of doing that. We saw that in Matthew 16. Jesus wants to go to the cross. Peter's saying, by no means, Lord. Here again, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Ah, Peter. Peter. Don't you remember what took place in Luke? That tremendous story that that unfolded where Jesus Christ himself was talking about the things that matter, how we need to be able to understand the ways in which Jesus Christ introduces, in essence, new table manners unto the Jerusalem crowd. And so he had to deal with the whole matter of cleanness and uncleanness. Takes a deep breath at this point. Ponders the significance of what's occurring. And then continues on. Voice answers the second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. I'm traveling to Tel Aviv. Sitting next to me is a, is a man in Jewish garb. The flight attendant is serving kosher food to various Jews on the plane before before the rest of us are served. Very clear distinction between what he ate, what I ate. There were distinctions here that the Jewish population at this point is going, we're going to have to work through, ponder. And now, here again, Peter says in verse 10, this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Now, at this point, not once, not twice, but three times, God has gotten Peter's attention. This happened when Jesus Christ had to, not once, not twice, but three times, ask Peter, do you love me? So now, Peter has been having to think this through. He's been having to grapple with this. Evidently, when he was with Jesus and and Jesus said, they are, also, they are also without understanding. Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus said this. But you see, Peter at that point was traveling about five miles per hour below the minimum speed limit when it came to his thought processes. It's time to get in the express lane, Peter. Put the pedal to the metal. Think through what Jesus is saying. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Well, there's the challenge. They've been making distinctions about food, but they extended it to making distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, as I'm on that plane and I'm looking at the kosher food and I'm looking at my food at this point. Well, there were six brothers who also accompanied. We, we entered the man's house. You can imagine at this point now the reaction there in Jerusalem. In verses 4 through 10, we're told what God has revealed. 
in verses 11 and 12, we're told what God has commanded. Spirit told me to go. Go with them. Make no distinction. While those in Jerusalem were making all kinds of distinctions. These six brothers also accompanied me. You can almost see them nodding their heads right now. Yeah, we sampled the menu. We know what's there. Now, what God has revealed and what God has commanded seems to be energizing what, what Peter's having to say. But there, all this took place in, in Caesarea. Caesarea. Look carefully at, at what's there in terms of the picture of Caesarea. Roman influence. Roman amphitheater. Now, in Joppa was the Greek influence. In Caesarea was the Roman influence. Roman occupation. Jews are always wrestling with occupied territory issues. But if you and I were spending time investing ourselves, in fact, in what was written in Daniel about the images that were appearing on the screen, so to speak, well, the third and fourth generations, the third and fourth, if you will, empires, should we say, were the Greeks followed by the Romans. And there in Joppa, you see the influence of the Greek civilization upon the Israelites. There in Caesarea, you see the Roman influence. And all this is in keeping, in fact, with what Daniel had described. What are you going to do? How are you going to explain this? He talks then about what God has revealed. He talks about what God has commanded. And you and I are seeing the evidences of how God is penetrating the regions with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that a Roman centurion would come to saving faith in Jesus. You're back to the text. You're up, in fact, now to, verse, to, to verses 13 and 14. Look very carefully what God has arranged. He told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He'll declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. And so God brought Cornelius's servants into, into Peter's life, a rendezvous arranged by God in order to make a difference for God's glory. Again, you take the crisis. You bring Christ to the crisis. And then the crisis becomes the seedbed for creativity as you then expand your outreach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the missionary Barnabas Shaw was told he couldn't go into Cape Town, to be able to share the gospel, he decided instead of leaving Africa, he was going to push into the interior. Remember the story? So he bought a yoke of oxen. His wife joined him. They started out. They were resolved to share the gospel wherever they could. So they journeyed for 300 miles. And while camping one night, they discovered that there was a band of Hottentots who were also camping nearby. And in conversation with the leader, 
Shaw learn that the people, the Hottentots, were on their way to Cape Town. They were looking for somebody who could share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what happened with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. This is what happens now with Cornelius in Acts 10. And not once, not twice, but three outpourings of the Holy Spirit take place in these opening chapters in the book of Acts. And so you see God at work. You see God at work such a way that in verses 4 through 10, you see what God has revealed. In verses 11 and 12, what God has commanded. In verses 13 and 14, what God has arranged. So Barnabas Shaw would begin to process what's occurring. This is of God. So now, he took the crisis, Barnabas Shaw. I came all this way to Cape Town and I can't share the gospel. He makes his way into the interior. Hottentots making their way to Cape Town. Not an accident in time, rather an appointment with time. You're up now. You're up now to the next verses. Because in the beginning in verse 15, you see what John Stott would call the fourth hammer blow, what God has validated. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. You can almost see their eyebrows lifted at this point. You're saying that what happened here in Jerusalem has now happened out there in, in Caesarea? And what happened among the Jews here happened to a Gentile there? Where is this headed? And the answer is to the uttermost parts. I remember the word of the Lord. Peter now draws them back to the words of Jesus. How he said, John baptized with water, but you, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that in the beginning of our Acts series in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and verse 5. You can almost see now the tension in the room. What do we do with what he's just shared? How do we explain this? Four hammer blows. What Peter has done is to introduce changeless truths in the midst of changing times. They've gone through their crisis. Persecution. Saul of Tarsus had caused people to flee Jerusalem. Family, relatives spread out over the landscape. But rather than contracting the gospel and keeping it in that setting, there's an expansion of the gospel that leaves that setting. Centripetal versus centrifugal forces. Where's the tension point at this point? Gathered versus scattered. What do we do at this point? But just as with the story of Babel in Genesis 11, where people were scattered, speaking other languages, now what we find here in the book of Acts is that the gospel is through means of other languages, spreading out to the faces of the earth. Hammer blows. The walls seem to be coming down. The gospel is going forth. 
The Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Gentile and Jew, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I love that phrase. My mind goes back to an excerpt from Time magazine, the year 1989. It's midnight. The Berlin Wall, which had divided the German population, was coming down. What happened in Berlin last week was a combination of the fall of the Bastille and New Year's Eve blowout of revelation, revolution and celebration. At the stroke of midnight on November 9th, a date not only known to Germans, but thousands who had gathered on both sides of the wall, let out a roar and started going through it as hammer blows attacked that wall. West Berlin Berliners were pulling East Berliners to the top of the barrier along which in years past many had been divided. And the two became one. And there's Peter. And he's saying Jew and Gentile. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. as Lord and Savior. Become one. For again, as the former persecutor and subsequent apostle would put it, the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in other words, Jew and Gentile believers, in place of the two, so making peace. You can see them leading forward at this point. Four hammer blows. He has provided evidential recountings of God's grace. In the midst of your crises, maybe you've lost a loved one in recent years. Maybe you've gone through times past. Rather than waste the experience, invest the experience. And now you're constructing something that will be of high significance. Application time. You can almost see Peter leaning forward at this point. How do you reason with him when you're at verse 17? After four hammer blows. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way, you see. We're seeing movements of the Holy Spirit. What's God going to do with this resistance that has been in the hearts of certain people in Jerusalem? We've got to move through the stages. First stage, initial resistance to our involvements. Second stage, evidential recountings of God's grace to four hammer blows. Salvation hammer blows. The third and final stage emerges out of just one verse. Verse 18. It's the eventual silence among those opposed. What do you say? 
when it's very clear that God is at work. Even in the midst of a coronavirus. When they heard these things, what happened? They fell silent. Utterly speechless. How long did the silence last? Can you see them looking at one another? Even in our crisis, persecution, that Saul of Tarsus, who, because of what he did, we've got family members spread out we might not see again. Loved ones who died. What Peter is doing at this point, he is bringing Christ to the crisis. And when you bring Christ to the crisis, the crisis becomes the seedbed for creativity. And notice that where there is creativity, there is ministry. They glorified God. They're saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. That leads, you see, to life. God has a way of silencing his critics. And so you look back at crises. Out of World War II, the men who learned to fly, who loved Jesus, they turn to one another and say, look, Uncle Sam trained us to fly and maintain planes. Why not put this to work on behalf of the Lord? We could fly missionaries to remote outstations in the jungles and elsewhere in a matter of hours where they now have to spend days and weeks trekking to such places. And so out of the crisis came Mission Aviation Fellowship. Out of the crisis came Send International. Out of the crisis came Great Greater European Mission. Out of the crisis was the technological creativity that produced Elwa in Africa where the gospel was beamed across the continent with the good news that Jesus has died for our sins. Don't waste your crisis. Your crisis is your seedbed for creativity if you bring Christ to the crisis. Let's close in prayer. So our Father, we're thanking you now for this time together. Sure, we're, we're gathered to be scattered, as we see in the book of Acts. And we might look back over those days when we'd be gathered in all of these services on Sunday mornings, and right now scattered. But there is a rhythm to life of gathered and scattered, and we see it happening again and again in Christian history. But through it all, what we see is that there is changeless truths to be presented in changing times. Help us now to look at this current situation and say, okay, I'm bringing Christ into my crisis, no matter what it is. And out of this crisis, I'm going to view it now as the seedbed for creativity 
matching creativity to new opportunities for ministry so that still more people can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And for this, we'll give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.